Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I just spoke with Endymion Wilkinson about Chinese history, a new manual that was just published with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2012. For historians of China at any level, be they students or researchers, professors, Chinese history, a manual, the previous incarnation of this work, and Endymion Wilkinson, the author of the work, really need no introduction. Chinese history, a manual, has long been, in its various incarnations and editions, an absolute staple of the work of anybody working on Chinese history. When I was in graduate school, we had the yellow-covered co- uh, the yellow covered copy of Chinese history, a manual. We simply referred to it as Wilkinson, and we used it for everything. Everybody had a copy, and you absolutely had to keep it with you or at least have it anywhere with you when you were doing research. Absolutely central to the field. As you'll hear from the conversation to come, this new edition is more than simply a revising of the previous work. In many ways, this constitutes an entirely new object, a dramatic addition to the material that was in the previous version, uh, in many ways a re-envisioning of what the field of Chinese history looks like, what the boundaries are, and what is relevant to, to the study itself. This volume includes not simply, although it does include this, really tremendously useful and vital guides to everything from how to write about Chinese history, a style sheet, how to romanize names of titles, names of people, how to periodize the dynasties of Chinese history. There's also really detailed and wonderful accounts of a whole range of topics that emerge from Wilkinson's long work as a historian, as a teacher, and as somebody who's thought very deeply about the intricacies and the components of the work of any Chinese historian, the, what makes up the flesh and the texture of the, the text and the people that emerge out of the stories of Chinese history. So you'll find among many, many, many other things in this enormously um, important and enormous volume, you'll find discussions of punning toponyms. You'll find several pages of detailed historical discussions of clothing and hairstyles. You'll find a gender breakdown of the four histories, discussions of examinations of sports and board games. You'll find extended discussions of alternate ways of translating several Chinese book titles, an entire section on nonverbal salutations, genuflections, hand salutations. There's just a tremendous richness of material in here that's not only a guide to the, the technologies of doing Chinese history, the kinds of sources available regardless of what period you work on, but is also a miscellany of just fascinating material about um, Chinese texts and Chinese history themselves. You'll, you'll hear also in the course of the conversation, certainly toward the end, I think, of the conversation, and it's worth sticking around for this reason, 
that Wilkinson is involved right now in the process of translating this manual into Chinese. And that process, uh, that endeavor, brings with it some really interesting challenges in dealing with issues of censorship, what you can't necessarily say in a Chinese language context and environment in this book that you can pretend perhaps say in the English language environment. So that aspect of the project, translating this project into Chinese, is itself worth um, worth the interview. There's a, a lot of really fascinating background, though, that Wilkinson also gives in the course of talking about the project and how to situate it within not just his own career, but also within a larger frame of how we think about what the boundaries and what the different components of the field of Chinese history can look like, do look like, and what different visions of that might produce in terms of an encyclopedic work. It's a really fascinating work. It's absolutely crucial. And I was completely um, fascinated to listen to Wilkinson's discussions about it. I think it's well worth listening to uh, his thoughts about his process. And I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Endymion Wilkinson about his brand new edition of Chinese History, a new manual. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Endymion, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. You are more than welcome. So can you start us off by saying a little bit about the early um, part of your career? What brought you to the field of China and Chinese history in the first place? I was at Cambridge University and studying history. And in my second year, I got so bored with studying what I had already done at high school. One day I was in the local bookstore, Heffers it was called then, and I saw a book published by Peking University Press, uh, an introduction to speaking Mandarin Chinese, modern Chinese they called it. I bought the book, it was so cheap, and I began to teach myself Chinese simply because it was as different as I could get from the stuff I'd done at high school and in my first year at Cambridge. That's what got me started on Chinese. So what was the early part of your, what did you work on in terms of your own research into Chinese history before you came to the first edition of the volume that we're talking about today? Well, I... After I graduated from Cambridge, I was allowed to switch to Chinese. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to China uh, in 1964. It was an unusual opportunity because it was the first time the Chinese since 1949 had hired uh, European people who were not Marxist. Uh, they did so in order to uh, improve the standard of the interpretation of the foreign ministry. And they hired five people from all the major languages in the world uh, and that's how I got to China in 1964 and started to study modern Chinese. At that time at Cambridge, you couldn't study modern Chinese. Uh, modern Chinese uh, ended at the Tang Dynasty, if you see what I mean. Modern Chinese started with the Song Dynasty. Um, I then did a PhD at Princeton University. In, 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 it started off in Ming history, and I began that research direction because I came across a huge body of, uh, rain, uh, of crop price reports in the, um, in, in the Bunka Kenkyujo in Tokyo uh, during a year's research in Tokyo. Uh, I finished my thesis, I went to London, and I started teaching. And then I found that 
I really didn't know enough about the other periods of Chinese history. I knew a bit about the Ming and the Qing. But I really, you couldn't have written on the fingernail of my little finger uh, much about the Zhou dynasty. And as for the Shang, I knew nothing whatsoever. So I began to ask myself, how could I teach if I don't know this, if I don't have a comprehensive view? And I began to uh, uh, write down notes on uh, books I read and uh, references I came across. And uh, one day, to cut a long story short, I was over in Harvard, and John Fairbank said to me, uh, Endymion, what are you researching on? And I said, well, I, it's, I'm not actually researching. I'm, I'm trying to finish off a, a, a guide for my students, including graduate students, as, as to how to do basic research on Chinese history. It's really addressed to myself because <laughs> I'm, I'm as ignorant as my students. And he said, show me the manuscript. So I showed him, and he came back to me after a very short while, and he said, uh, we'll publish this. I was, uh, I was amazed because I, I hadn't really seen it in those terms. So I worked on it a bit more. And in 1973, we published it, I think it was published as monograph number 49 in the, in the uh, East Asia series of monographs. Now, this is, um, for listeners who may not be uh, specialists in Chinese history, I'll just say, um, for uh, as a point of information, the book that we're talking about today is the new edition of um, this text that it was first produced in the 1970s. And this is a, an absolutely crucial, massively important volume that is on the desks or on the shelves of every single Chinese history student and professor that I know. I assign this as an absolutely required purchase to every single graduate student that I teach in Chinese history. And I know this has, um, from the very beginning of our careers, um, this is an, an absolutely crucial volume. So it's a very important work, um, and it's very exciting to be able to talk to you today about the uh, the process of actually creating this new volume. So um, this is this is just this is not just any other book um, for listeners who may not be uh, professionals in the field. Just to put that on the table. So it sounds like this began as a project with um, a resource that you were putting together for your students. Can you talk about a little bit about the research process that went into this first volume in the 1970s? And I, I ask this to set the stage so that we can then talk a little bit later about any significant changes from the, the early stages of research for this large diachronic process or diachronic project um, and how that's changed over time. So what was the research process like for the very first edition of this book? Well, I had to inform myself as to what were the basic resources in Chinese, of course, and also to a certain extent in Japanese, what were the basic resources available for studying Chinese history uh, for every dynasty? That is to say, I, I in fact did only Imperial China in that first volume, 1973. It was only 70,000 words long. Uh, the present edition is 1.5 million words long. So it's grown by about 25 times. Uh, there's no comparison between the 1973 uh, preliminary edition, let's call it, and what is uh, on the table today. That's why it's called a new edition. It's it, it, uh, a new manual. It is totally new. 
Right. Um, so this is um, then what you're saying is this is a, a comp you're conceptualizing this as a qualitatively different kind of project. Were there, um, if we can, though, place this in a longer genealogy just for the sake of um, understanding the history that produced this, as you're calling it, very, very different kind of volume and very different project now. The, um, the current volume that we're talking about is separated into a number of categories, a number of chapters, and these are split roughly, um, if I can sort of roughly characterize them into more um, topical kinds of categories, and then categories that are devoted to individual time periods and individual dynasties. And again, that's a rough characterization of a much more fine-grained structure. Was this also a feature of the early, the earliest edition of the 1973? No. Okay, can you talk a little bit about the structure of the 1973 edition then, so that we can understand um, the, the, in some ways, dramatic ways that you also um, have changed in terms of your approach to putting together a manual that is for students and professionals well, in the field? The 1973 volume, as far as I can remember it, it's a long time ago. It's, for, it's exactly 40 years ago that it came out. It, it's basically uh, uh, a bibliography. It's an introduction to the major uh, resources that a student might require, as I said, for any period of Chinese history. There are no uh, introductions to the historical background behind the sources. So, to, uh, in 1998, the um, people at Harvard asked me if I'd be prepared to do a, a new edition, and I said yes. It must have been in the mid-1990s that they asked me. I said yes, and I thought it'd be interesting to add uh, the historical background to the production of uh, Chinese sources. Mm -hmm which is what I did. And in 1998, they produced a completely new edition. It was about 350,000 words. Uh, that, uh, two years later, they produced another edition, which went up to about, I think, 400,000 words. Uh, and then I thought, uh, I went to Harvard. Um, uh, I retired from being a diplomat, and I went to Harvard, and I taught there for a time. Uh, and I also did research there. And I set myself the task of going deeper into many of the problems which I'd raised in the 2000 edition, which is a yellow-backed edition. I would go deeper into those problems. And as I went along, uh, the new manual grew terribly. Uh, and as I say, it ended up, it's, it's now 1.4 million words, which is the equivalent of nine 400-page monographs, um, which presented, and I'll talk about that later, which presented enormous difficulties of actual book production. So let's. Um, so in the process of going from the 2000 uh, edition to this edition, you say um, you were teaching at Harvard, and that that actually occasioned some rethinking of the kind of work that was done. Perhaps if, if I can characterize it that way, and you can let me know if I'm um, if I'm mischaracterizing that process in my translation of your description. But can you talk a little bit about some specific ways that your uh, experience with teaching in that interim period changed specific aspects of the project from the 2000 edition to this one? Were there, what, what were some of the specific things that, um, that transformed for you in that process? Well, I, I found that in 
teaching, I taught graduate students, uh, a graduate seminar. I found that in teaching graduate students, a very good technique was to raise a seemingly innocent question. For example, when did the Chinese army or Chinese troops first begin to march in step? Now, that sounds simple, but it, turned out, it turns out it's incredibly complicated. It means reading through the ancient instruction manuals for Chinese uh, troop training, uh, right up to the Ming Dynasty, where you have the most famous ones, and then on into the 19th century. And so far as my seminar could discover, it's only in the late 19th century that that Chinese troops actually begin to march regularly in step. That may seem a small point, but it leads on to the whole business of how were armies trained, how did they march, how was discipline preserved, and, if you like, the, a, a deeper approach to uh, military history than just recounting uh, the battle formation and the outcome of the battle. Questions like that... Uh, I found very fascinating. Here's another example. Uh, you, you'll find in the Western literature and also in the Chinese literature and Japanese literature a discussion of what are called nianhao, which are era, I could translate those as era names, that a, a group of years are given a specific name um, in a complicated uh, but very uh, careful process by the court, by the imperial court. It was introduced in the Han Dynasty, and and people discuss individual Nianhao, they discuss the year it was introduced, but they never discussed why were Nianhao introduced. What was the objective? And did the objective remain the same? Well, again, a seemingly innocent question, a seemingly fairly dumb question, it turns out that it's absolutely fascinating that the first Nianhao were introduced as a technique of prolonging the life of the dynasty. You turn the year count back to one each time you introduce a Nianhao. And uh, it was also connected with the permanent desire of Chinese rulers to prolong this the, the scale of their lives, the search for longevity. You see it today that all Chinese members of the Standing Committee of the Politburo dye their hair black. It's the same desire for longevity. Uh, so the Nianhao story gets more complicated, and of course, the Nianhao was used for different purposes at different periods in Chinese history. I couldn't find that in any textbook that I've read. Um, uh, and so the new manual goes into topics like that, uh, not tens or dozens, but many hundreds of topics like that, and that's why it's so long. And there are, um, I'll say for listeners, some of the places that you can find these kinds of really wonderful and really rich 
aspects of the texture of history that are unexpected and that also lead in really interesting and productive places are in the uh, are in the boxes that are um, there are many many boxes of information throughout the text and they form a kind of wonderful miscellany of historical information from lists of Sucher's names to jokes from late imperial popular literature about people trying to speak um, Guanhua or official speech to a list of the 17 or a list of 17 of the tall people in the histories on 171, which is one of my favorites, to a box about the speed of ancient armies in 319. And these are just a handful of the, as you mentioned, many, many, many pieces of information that um, that are included in the book. And this is in addition to the larger backbone of um, really fundamental uh, directions and mapping to research materials in, in many, many languages. No. Carla, can I can can I make a point before you yes, proceed to the yes, next point? That is that there are I think there are 125 boxes and there are 149 tables uh, tabulating information in the manual. But uh, to produce a text box, for example, on marching in step or the speed of ancient armies, because uh, I introduced comparisons, of course, with Roman armies and with uh, Alexander's armies. Uh, and I also have a section on the speed at which Chinese navies sailed. Uh, the text box is not long. It's maybe 300 to 800 words. But the re research involved in that is sometimes, um, uh, I don't want to, don't want to sound, uh, uh, it, but it's sometimes mind-boggling. Uh, you can spend uh, weeks and sometimes months on uh, some of those problems. Do you have a, an example you can give us of that? Or do any particular um, uh, individual boxes or tables stand out in your mind as being particularly naughty or fraught or extensive research processes that led into what, um, what we see in the book that we may not know otherwise? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think it's the first box, but and I called it the manner of speaking. I asked myself the question, why is it that nearly every historian that I've read in of China, in any language, uh, never tells you how people spoke? Wang Anshu, the Song Dynasty, how did he speak? What did he sound like? Uh, Han Yu, what did he sound like? Nobody ever tells you. The reason they don't in Chinese uh, accounts of Chinese history is it's a nationalistic point that they want the reader to assume that we have all spoken the same way in our great nation since time immemorial. Of course, nothing could be further than the truth. So I asked myself the question, uh, how would people have sounded and how can one find out how they sounded? I mean, think of your friends. You identify them probably by their physical appearance, but the um, another way of identifying them is often by the timbre of their voice. And I came to the conclusion, and this of course gets you into dialect history, um, I came to the conclusion that only a tiny minority of people would have been able to speak in a in a, a, a common language, in a koine, um, uh, guanhua. Uh, th those who spoke guanhua 
uh, were such a small minority, but they were all men. And that leads on to another conclusion, that the women would have spoken in much thicker dialect accents than, than the men, that is, in the elite. Why? Because the men learned to speak in uh, more uh, standard ways by being mobile. They went to the county town for a study. They went to the prefectural town, and they went to the, uh, the capital of the province, and finally they went to the metropolis if they were successful. And in each of those places, they would have found a different level of dialect, and they would have begun to learn uh, the standard language. Women were not as mobile as men. And therefore, women would have spoken in the most extraordinarily uh, thick accents. From this, we can also see why Chinese culture was so emphatically centered on, focused on the written word. They couldn't understand each other. They had to rely on the written word. There was no other choice. So that's box one. But it's all, it's all fitted onto half a page. <laughs> So let's actually talk about that um, that issue of fit um, and, uh, and of editing for a moment. We've been talking about the uh, genesis of this project and of this volume that um, this very massive, as you said, um, 1.4 million, you know, this very massive volume in terms of an additive process, in terms of how much more material that's in here. But of course, as with any encyclopedic endeavor, an encyclopedic project, it's, ab it's impossible to encompass all of the relevant information that goes into, or, well, to encompass all of the relevant information on any particular topic um, between two book covers, right? It's it's a, it would be impossible in here to incorporate everything that you learned in, in your long career and your teaching and your research. So can you talk a little bit about um, the editing process, about what, for example, in um, for any one of these boxes that that you're particularly interested in, whether it be the Guanhua issue or the Mianhao um, issue um, or, or another issue, how do you decide what not to include, and what is that process for you? It's a very good point. Uh, I did it on the basis of, uh, in a way, it's rather selfish. Things which really interested me. Um, things which I didn't know the answer to, and therefore it was fun to do the research on. Things that I couldn't find the answer to in other books, in other reference works, or in other encyclopedias. So, uh, another thought in my mind was, it has to capture the reader's interest. And therefore, for example, when I discuss political sloganeering, and I try to draw the parallel between imperial sloganeering, uh, which has been going on since the Han Dynasty, uh, right up to what everybody knows about the imperial edict in the, in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, that goes right back to the Han Dynasty, and it continues, of course, in, in uh, the, the China of Mao Zedong. Uh, in doing that, I introduced, for example, deliberately an anecdote to capture the reader's interest. Uh, an encyclopedia which doesn't capture the reader's interest uh, from time to time, and hopefully on every page, it is not going to be read. And the anecdote there under political sloganeering, I'll tell it very quickly, is that one day I had a call uh, on a very senior Chinese leader, uh, Li Xianyan, who was then the finance minister, 
uh, and of course he became the president of China. And in the course of his uh, exposition, it must have been in the 1978 or 9, possibly 1980, Li Tianyan said, and we have introduced the policy of the four modernizations. And my boss, the president of the European Commission, said, oh, how interesting, what are the four? And Li Xianlian said the modernization of agriculture, the modernization of uh, technology, and the modernization of, of, he couldn't remember what the third one was. And he turned to the vice ministers and the directors general uh, lined up behind him and everybody shook their head. And of course, it was the interpreter who flawlessly produced the correct answer. But I, I put that in as an example that the leaders very often um, uh, were not conversant or had forgotten the slogans. And I said ordinary people, too, very often had no idea what all these uh, multiple and numerical slogans were about. Uh, of course, that has produced problems with my Chinese edition. You're not allowed to say anything which detracts from the image of a senior leader. So the blue pencil comes out, and that is cut. And we will um, we'll talk much more about the Chinese edition um, in, in a little bit. One of the things that, um, that you just said raises a, a question for me that I would um, love it if you could speak a little bit to. Are there specific ways in which you feel that or you're cognizant of your diplomatic career shaping the kinds of things that you included in the volume and or your approach to the volume in any kind of specific way? Possibly. That when uh, you work as a diplomat, you have to process huge amounts of information which comes in every morning by, by uh, various means. And you also have to write reports, but you're not allowed to write lengthy reports. And therefore, you develop the art of encapsulating a subject interestingly and quickly uh, in, in, in five lines. And I tried to use that te technique in the introductions to, I think the, the manual has about 70, 76 chapters and about 600 uh, chapter sections, and each of them are introduced by a, a, a small, um, a short introduction. I tried to use that technique to get to the core of the problem in an interesting way, to catch the reader's attention um, in writing the new manual. And did it shape at all um, in a way that you're aware of uh, or that you're self-conscious about the kinds of inf or the, the topics that you included um, or the, the kind of information? Uh, not really. I think I was working more as a historian. But when I when, there's a long there's a there's a huge uh, chapter on government. Um, obviously, it's such an important part of Chinese institutional history. But in writing about government, I did use my bureaucratic experience in saying, for example, that the formal uh, government organigram, the government organization charts, are very often misleading. The, the real flow of power is, in my experience, is often very different from the formal uh, way it's put on paper. Now, as we um, sort of get into 
or into the texture of the book itself, one of the things about a volume like, well, there are no other volumes like this, but one of the things um, from the perspective of a reader and a user of this volume, of, of a historian um, who's living with this volume, um, that emerges about the volume is that it's in some ways, um, it, it's, it reads as if it's attempting to encapsulate an entire field. Now, any field of, um, of endeavor at all, and, and certainly Chinese history, and certainly in the course of 10 year, more than 10 years from um, the 2000 edition to, um, to this edition, which, as you've mentioned, is, is less an addition than a, a substantially new endeavor, but a field is going to transform. It's a constantly moving target. Are there specific ways in your experience um, as, a, as a historian of China, as a teacher, and in in particular, in approaching this volume we're talking about today, are there important ways you've noticed the field transforming, and are there ways that, if so, that's reflected in, in the volume itself, or in any sub substantial changes in the way you approached um, the field in this volume? Yes. Uh, uh, technically, Chinese archaeology is simply... Um, astonishing because the reconstruction of the Chinese infrastructure has led to chance discoveries of all kinds of unheard of uh, magnificent uh, cultural sites and archaeological digs. Uh, therefore, the whole of ancient Chinese history is up for the grabs in an extraordinarily interesting way. That is very hard to keep up to date on um, secondly, you have whole fields opening up as a result of new interests in China. Uh, to take an example, the destruction of the um, ecology of many of the great rivers and lakes of China has led to a strong movement to um, try and uh, react in the opposite direction, to, to, to preserve them, to save them. Um, and that has led to a great interest in, in, in a new field. Environmental history has opened up. Uh, as China's population moved from a predominantly agrarian population to uh, now more than 50% urban, this is, of course, in my view, the major change which has happened. None of the political dates are, to me, of any enormous interest. Uh, by comparison with the shift from an agrarian to an urban population and all the sociological and uh, political changes that involves. But that has led to a huge development of Chinese urban history. Um, that, those are some of the examples which leap to my mind. Women's history is another one. That women's history has, has really taken many twists and turns in the 20th century in China. But uh, gender history now, of course, is a big deal. And I had to make huge efforts in, in my chapter on women's studies uh, to bring that up to, or to keep up to date. Uh, worst of all, were those chapters which I wrote in 2002, for example, and by 2010 I had to rewrite the chapter all over again because of the changes. What were some of those chapters? Can you identify or um, give examples of some of those chapters? Well, for example, the New Qing history. Of course, I know some of the people uh, deeply involved in that uh, in the uh, People's University in Remindashi. Um 
and they were a great help to me by saying that you know I I very often submit a section or a paragraph or a chapter to a leading expert somewhere somewhere in the world, and they were very kind to say to me, "Well, you're about three years out of date on that." <laughs> so I, I would either have to go around and call on them. I, I was also a visiting professor at Peking University during this time, so it was easy to call on people. Uh, and Chinese scholars are, as you know, uh, usually extremely generous with their insights and their comments. Uh, another field which is particularly important for us historians is that the Tunghua edition of the 24 histories, as you know, is an important edition, but it is being completely re-edited, and it's due to be published by 2014 or 15. Uh, so I, I talked with the editors in, in the Zhonghua Press, and I also talked with some of the people involved in doing the editing to get a realistic idea of what what the new edition will involve. And I like to try and put these new aspects in the manual. But that was a moving target because the plans changed over 12 years and, and so on and so forth. I don't want to bore you with any more detail. So... As we know, um, as uh, this is probably true in any field, but it's particularly true for Chinese history, it's not just that the, the kinds of, um, or the, the discussions of, the treatments of um, particular topics have changed dramatically over time, but also the mechanics, the technologies of what it looks like to do research have changed dramatically, and certainly in the last decade. You mentioned in the, um, in the prefatory material in the volume, um, you, you single out the inclusion of electronic resources. And so this brings, um, brings me to ask, if, there's, if you can talk a little bit about electronic resources here, how, what your approach to them was, and more broadly situating this into a larger um, discussion of any ways, I, I imagine elect, the use of and reliance on electronic resources for research is one of them, but any ways that the actual qualitative process of what it has looked or what it did look like in the last edition or as of the period of the last edition to do Chinese research and what it looks like now to do research on Chinese history um, have changed. So are there any qualitative changes in what it has looked like to your eyes to actually do research in Chinese history? Um, and is, um, are there ways that that's reflected in this? Well, uh, let me put that in, in an even larger context. In uh, ancient China, uh, defined as being China up to the 1912, uh, scholars of Chinese history memorized texts. They used their memories. Therefore, very few indexes were produced. By the 1930s, scholars were no longer sitting for the exams. They didn't exist, the imperial exams. Scholars no longer memorized texts. And therefore, uh, the Harvard Yenjing Index series was introduced, uh, and many other indexes were produced, uh, and concordances to aid scholars in finding things uh, quickly. By the 1990s, the indexes were completely out of date because uh, texts were being produced digitally, electronically. Uh, and by the now, uh, the electronic editions are, 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 are fair and good and useful, but of course we now have databases of enormous uh, proportions which link texts together and uh, allow cross-text searches and uh, 
much more um, detailed uh, types of database are being developed. All of that uh, as a process was hardly captured in the 2000 edition of the manual. I, I have tried in the new manual to keep up to date. It's exceedingly difficult. Let me give you a, 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 a typical problem that databases are very often have different names depending upon the site from which they're operated and they can operate uh, in many different sites over the world. And you, so you have a proliferation of different names for the same thing. Also, the Taiwan name is often, for a database, is often very different from the mainland name. Uh, I've tried to sort all that out, and I, uh, there is an index of data, 160 databases, which I found particularly useful uh, in my own research. And, of course, I questioned my uh, grad students at Peking University, and I questioned grad students at Harvard what they, what they find useful. And uh, that is a whole new aspect which has been added to, but it's, it's, as I say, it's very hard to keep up to date. Uh, it's, a shifting, it's a shifting target. Was there anything in the earlier um, edition, or the, or the, um, the, the I'm just going to refer to it as the early edition, with the, um, with the understanding that we, we have already on the table that this new volume is more than simply a new edition. It's, it's in many ways a new kind of thing. But were the, was there any material um, in the previous edition of this that you took out or that you fundamentally changed the nature of in a way that wasn't um, additive, that was simply transforming or, or perhaps even removing? Yeah. The major thing I took out were individual works by individual scholars because they, they had become out of date by 2012. Mm -hmm. So, so I, did, I not only added in a huge amount of new material, I also took out uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of titles and scholars and authors, uh, I, 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 inevitably, in my experience, nowadays, it is only the very exceptional scholar whose work lasts for more than 15 years. And what makes a work, in your opinion, last in that? Like, what... What needs to, or what needed, if you could give um, a specific example or two, to characterize a work in order for you to decide that it was out of date and not worth including? I don't want to... Or you don't have to be specific. You don't have to single out individuals, but... Um, but rather I, I, would rather, I, I would rather not. But I put it the other way around. What is it that makes a work of lasting value? And I've often asked myself that question, and I think that it comes down to the fact that most of us are, are rather pedestrian in our abilities and minds, but occasionally our field has attracted, both in China and Japan and uh, in Europe and America, has attracted people of extraordinary ability. And their works last. I think of the French historian Henri Maspero, much of the, his detail is now um, uh, surpassed, but his work is still worth reading. I think of uh, a great French psychologist, Chavannes, who was writing a hundred, more than a hundred years ago. But his footnotes are still uh, extraordinarily um, much better than a lot of the work that has been produced since. I'm not saying you should read Chavannes, but... Uh, 
And there are many more examples you could think of like that, uh, as I say, both in China and Japan and in, in, in America. The art of doing uh, history is to quickly find out who are those, I will call them genius, or near genius, who are the geniuses in the field that you simply must have some idea what they wrote. There are not so many, but they're well worth reading. And for you, um, as um, as a somebody who's working on an encyclopedic project, and it, it sounds like this is, um, you've mentioned individuals of extraordinary ability as some of the touchstones of the kind of history that you are um, seeking to preserve in this project. So as a reader who's looking for that genius and who thinks about the field in those terms, is there anything in particular that you how do I phrase this, that you use to identify those works um, before many years have gone by and you can identify them in terms of their long-lasting impact on the field? Is there anything from the outset that as a reader and a historian and a kind of encyclopedist that you um, use to identify these works of genius um, for inclusion before much time has gone past and they've proven themselves by their long-lasting impact on the field? Well, I think they stand out already in their own time. Right. So that's what I'm. That's actually what I'm asking. Because as a reader, what stands out for you may not be what stands out for others. So, is there anything that makes a work stand out for you um, in particular? Um, it, you've talked about copious footnotes. Are there any other qualitative aspects of a work that you look to um, in identifying what's going to be long-lasting, in, in your opinion, for years to come? When I mention Chavan's footnotes, uh, he has, in fact, uh, footnotes which go on for 30 pages. I mean, he has mini monographs attached to his translation of the Shirji, which are still worth reading. Um, I, I'm not in favor of, of lots and lots of footnotes uh, as such. Um, no, I, I can't put my finger on it in an easy way. Um, the modern method is to use citation indexes and to see how many times a person is cited. That may indicate fashion. It may not indicate a lasting uh, influence on the field. Uh, you, you very soon find out in talking to people, uh, the great thing in doing uh, any subject surely is the, the conviviality which comes from meeting people working in the same field. And from that you can learn an enormous amount. I mean, I used to attend the annual conferences on the Shang Dynasty in China. You simply meet in one room the 120 people who who make Shang history, and within three days of the conference, you can uh, update yourself, learn what's going on, who is who is uh, you know leading the field. That's how you find out. So you've alluded a little bit earlier to some of the major challenges in terms of book production um, with this volume. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Absolutely. Uh, when you get up to 1.5 million words, uh, the average monograph is about 150 to 250,000 words. And it sells for nowadays $50, $60. When you bring to your publisher something which is 1.4 million words, the publisher runs in the opposite direction or reaches for his pistol, or his or her pistol. Um, 
it is a technical problem, and we overcame it. It took several months to overcome it. By uh, I did the work on the typeface. I found a typeface which is specially designed to be readable in small sizes. That means that the um, X height of the letters, the bowls of the Bs, for example, are large, but the ascenders and descenders, the, 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 the line running up from H or the line running down from Y, the ascenders and descenders are short. That means that you can keep the text legible but put it in a small size. Uh, I found, uh, I bought a, a typeface, it's called Georgia Pro Lite, and that seems to work very well. So reducing the type size but keeping it legible, going into two columns instead of one, and increasing the trim size. The trim size, that means the actual size of the book is, is larger uh, than a than a normal book. Uh, it it weighs, I think, five pounds, two point three kilo. Uh, eventually, another technical thing which is of interest to the reader is that we did it in two colours, which immediately it has cost implication, and we used um, red for all the heads and subheads, with titles and subheads, subtitles. That that um, putting all that together it was not easy. And uh, why is it in one volume? Why is it in this enormously heavy volume? I I was the one that insisted it must be in one volume to keep the price down, because immediately you go to two volumes, you double the price. That's me. And, and we managed to produce it for uh, for a sales price of forty five dollars, which is simply extraordinary. Uh, I'm sorry, go on. Yeah. Uh, another point which I attach great importance to is that uh, uh, there's a considerable amount of Chinese text and Japanese text uh, mingled in with the English text. And if you read the average monograph, often the characters bleed. That is to say, the, the, the ink is too black. Uh, on complex characters, so the, comp the middle of the complex character gets into, gets into sort of a, a blodge, a, a smudge. And therefore, uh, we've managed to find a printer, uh, I didn't do, but my editor at, at Harvard did find a printer who has done a brilliant job in keeping the weight of the English type and the uh, Chinese characters equal, and making it 85% black, let's say 15% gray, and therefore it's easy on the eye, and there, there is minimal bleeding. Yeah, that's one of the really striking things about this volume is how easy to read it is, um, despite its, its enormous size, um, and that's really a testament to the, the thoughtfulness with which it sounds like you and the editorial team went into the production of the book as an object. Um, so that's, that's really very striking from the perspective of a reader. Now, you've just invoked the issue of Chinese language and Chinese characters, which brings me to um, the, 
really fascinating process that you alluded to before we started um, recording the conversation, which is that this is actually coming out, you mentioned, in a Chinese language edition. So can you talk about that process, the process of creating and translating that um, Chinese edition of this and, and, whatever, and whatever challenges that might pose for you as a translator and as a writer? The difficulty was that the translation process itself has taken three years. And the problem there is that, that Chinese translators are not remunerated in any ongoing fashion. In Japan, translators are given a share of the royalty, therefore they have an interest in the outcome. In China, they're given a flat rate, so they do it as quickly as possible. And very often, if they don't understand something, they paraphrase. And it is very dispiriting to see a paragraph which you've worked on carefully uh, turned into a paraphrastic nonsense with tineered repetition of uh, stock phrases uh, and so on. So that was a problem, the problem of translation. Uh, it, 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 that, the translation was finished uh, um, summer of last year. Now, the editing is the second step, where you see different values at, at work. And I can perhaps, I've illustrated that already in the, I, I had an anecdote, I thought a perfectly harmless anecdote about Li Xianyan. He's a busy and important man, he can't remember part of a current slogan. That is unacceptable. Out it goes. You cannot, uh, in China, as you know, in Chinese publishing, there are at least five topics which are delicate, if not unmentionable. One, the history of the Chinese Communist Party has to be told according to the uh, standard formulae. Two, no senior Communist Party member, that is a member of Guoyuan and above, uh, can ever be shown in a negative light. Three, religion. Four, national minorities. Five, uh, international relations. So you can see there are quite a number of areas <laughs> which, the, which the new manual covers, which are open to, um, shall we say, to uh, agonizing on the part of, uh, of, of a Chinese editor. Let me give you a small example. Uh, in the current Chinese parlance, the Liao dynasty, which is what we would call in America or Europe a conquest dynasty, it was it was a people living in the northern uh, to the north of China, to the northeast of China. So it wasn't steppe land; it was partial steppe land, partial um, farming. The Liao, very warlike people, they conquered very large parts of northern China uh, in the tenth century. Now, in the Chinese parlance, they are referred to as dynasty, a dynasty established by a national minority. The Liao people are called a national minority because that is the current uh, Chinese phrase for all people who are not Han, ethnic Han. Well, I find the use of modern terms to describe historical the peoples uh, 
confusing and leading to misunderstanding. Let me give you another example. And it's often it's a mistake often found in American writing about China. The word Guodia, which today means nation, uh, you you have an example in Peking, the Guodia Tushuguan, the National Library as it's now called. Um Guodia in China before nineteen twelve meant dynasty. Uh, normally. Uh, it could sometimes mean state, but it normally meant uh, the dynasty. Uh, another example of anachronistic use of language, Zheng Shi, uh, standard histories, was a phrase uh, used in the 18th century to describe the 24 uh, standard histories, or some people call them dynastic histories. Zheng Shi, but juncture before the 18th century had many different meanings. It was applied to analytic sources. It was, supplied, it was applied to rain histories. You cannot, therefore, translate it meaninglessly as standard history. Uh, one could go on with these examples, but let me get back to the national minorities. I describe the Liao and the Jin uh, dynasties as conquest dynasties. And I divide my description of them into three. What were those peoples like before they conquered China? What were they like during their rule in China? And thirdly, what became of them after? In those three phases, I believe that they had different identities, uh, different behavior patterns, and different histories. There is nothing to be gained by calling them by a portmanteau phrase, national minority. Well, my editors don't agree. <laughs> and, therefore, and therefore the blue pencil comes out again. And since much of Chinese history is indeed concerned with non-Han uh, relations and non-Han dynasties, uh, this means there's a lot of blue pencil. So would you say that as a result, because there is, it's, it's very striking how much attention in, in this um, manual that there is to non-Han peoples and to also resources in non-Han languages, um, which makes it extraordinarily useful for a historian, but would seem that the, it poses even more um, naughty issues for the uh, in, in the process of translating it. Would you say that this qualitatively changes the nature of the volume in Chinese or... Um, uh, we haven't finished the editing process. <laughs> okay. It, it's ongoing. But to give an even more striking example, I believe that the Mongols uh, conquered uh, China, uh, as we all know, in a long drawn out, but it was a bloody process. There were terrible battles, there were terrible suffering, and there was a lot of death. Well, the Mongols are described officially as a friendly national minority. It was a small family quarrel, that was all. I can understand how the Chinese came to this position. They want, as Carla, you and I know, they want to make a successful multi-ethnic nation. They don't want conflict between the ethnicities, between the different nationalities. And therefore, I, I, I think one could thoroughly support such an objective. But it makes a nonsense of writing history to project the present into the past. 
So as we um, as we sort of come to perhaps the last part of our conversation about this this massive and really incredible accomplishment, an amazing volume, are there any parts of the volume that, as um, the creator of the volume, stand out to you as your either your favorites or the ones that you feel make the most significant contribution um, to the field? Well, if I may, I think I would like to single out two or three aspects of the new manual, which I worked on very hard. One, I have tried very hard to introduce comparisons with other ancient societies. I'm dead against writing the history of China or researching it as a nationalistic enterprise where you don't go beyond the boundaries of China. Uh, you, you, you know, for example, that family names were introduced into China in the late Chunqiu, uh, along with a, a great deal of interesting social change and also military organization change. Uh, but family names were introduced into Rome, into ancient Rome at the same time. Is this a coincidence? Or do we see similar social processes at work? I, I like to bring out those problems. Here's another one. In book after book, we are told that the date 221 before the Common Era, the foundation of the Chinese Empire, is an extremely important date. Yes, it is. But 260 BCE was the foundation, was the, the by Ashoka of India, was the extension of the Mauryan Empire to its greatest extent. What did he do, having accomplished that, that is to say effectively unified the Indian subcontinent, he set out the principles upon which he felt that he had done it in pillars uh, carved with his edicts at the boundaries of his empire. This was in 200. Well, that's exactly what Qin Shi Huangdi did it had never been done before in China, at the boundary of his empire. I am not saying that the two events are connected or that the means of communication uh, influenced each other, but I'm saying that we should look beyond the boundaries of China. Only when you can see the similarities with other ancient civilizations can you see the real unique characteristics of Chinese history. That, that, is, that is one thing I would like to draw attention to. Another one is, I've already touched upon it, is anachronistic use of language. It's another um, characteristic of modern Chinese history, or Chinese history in the last 10 years, that people now uh, are becoming much, much more self-conscious about how they use language. For example, feudalism is a word which has come under attack in China itself as being a meaningless label. Indeed it is, as it is applied to Chinese history. And there are many other such words. Um, I've mentioned Zhengshi, I've mentioned Guojia, one could mention Wenxian, Wenxue, all these meant different things at different times. And part of the art of the historian is to apply a sort of linguistic archaeology to find out what things actually meant at the time that they were used. I put a lot of emphasis on that. Well, I probably talked too much already. No, no, no. If there's, um, please feel free. I mean, if there are other things that you want to mention um, that you feel are important, um, please feel free to mention them. I highlighted 
to me, uh, working in China as a diplomat, and um, I was always struck by the weight put upon a historical uh, anecdote or a historical reason for doing something or a historical claim for territory or whatever. And therefore, um, one has to ask oneself the question in doing Chinese history, why was such enormous importance attached to the writing of history in Chinese culture? And it's an importance which continues to this day. Uh, and therefore, I, I, I did try very hard to write a long, long chapter on the production of history, but its reception. How did people read history? How was it multiplied? How was it understood at different periods in the course of Chinese history? That, that's another feature which I worked a lot on, and I would like to draw to your listeners' attention. Looking um, looking ahead, if we can, for a moment, we've talked a little bit about um, a way where we've situated this project and this volume within a larger genealogy um, in terms of the, looking to the past. But if we could, for a moment, as we uh, move to our conclusion, look a little bit to the future. As somebody who has probably, um, who's worked more closely on developing a comprehensive vision of the field than, than it perhaps anyone or certainly most of us um, have, are there any particular areas in the field of Chinese history that stand out to you as um, being particularly suited for or particularly um, geared toward major changes to come? What are some of the, if you can anticipate for a moment, if we can sort of project into you know 10 years from now, are there any particular aspects of the field that you feel like are, are changing right now and are most um, exciting in terms of where we're going in the future? I, I've already mentioned that uh, simply because of the fact of uh, excavation for infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, construction in China, uh, archaeology, uh, have, uh, rescue archaeology, all types of archaeology, have uh, simply opened up uh, the entire uh, field of early Chinese history, that is Chinese history up to the Han Dynasty. That history in most of our Western uh, textbooks of China, books about China, has never really been integrated into uh, what comes after. It's easier to write about the 19th century as a backdrop for the present day. It's less easy to write about uh, ancient China and somehow pull that all together. Take the Shang Dynasty. How interesting that is. It's the only glimpse we have of China before Confucius. Um, but you won't, you, one doesn't see really very much about the Shang Dynasty in our writings about Chinese history. So I think that somehow or other, if we can reintegrate ancient China into the story, and the other uh, angle, which I think is due for a huge uh, uh, relook, is the whole history of the late 19th, 20th centuries. That has been bound very much in the grip of a political party. The Communist Party of China had a, an extremely um, rigid um, a set of theses about how history developed, uh, culminating, of course, in the victory of the Chinese Communist Party. But I think that 
that will is beginning to be rewritten now in China, and I think that will influence also the way we look at uh, modern Chinese history. Well, and Demian, thank you so much uh, for making the time to talk with me today, and certainly given the quite um, extreme time difference that we're uh, that we're working in, there's this is an extraordinarily rich book. There is no way for us to cover in an hour all of the um, really everything that's in here. Is there anything in particular about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to see the new edition of the book? Uh, I think we've covered most of the bases, but what I can do is that before um, this afternoon, I worked out by doing a word count precisely what constitutes the new manual, and that may be helpful because just giving a list to the number of chapters or the number of books is divided into doesn't really tell you um, how many words are in each. 65% of the manual is made up by uh, topical discussions of things like um, geography, governing and educating, ideas, beliefs, literature, and fine arts, that sort of thing. 65% is devoted to subjects, topics. 25% of the new manual is devoted to putting the resources for Chinese history into a period-by-period -period presentation, starting with prehistory, archaeology, and moving slowly forward through the dynasties down to uh, 1949. 8%, and that's the last part of the manual, is devoted to historical bibliography, in the technical sense, the history of the book. Uh, how this influenced literature, how this influenced the writing of history, different media upon which uh, people wrote. Uh, and then at the very end, there's a section on how to keep up to date with research. And now that we've already talked a little bit about, um, and this, this will be my final question for you, we've talked about your current work right now in translating um, this into Chinese, and so that's um, certainly, I'm sure, taking a lot of your time. Is there any um, other, or are there any other projects right now that are particularly inspiring you? What's next for you now that this book is out? Well, I want to take a rest because... <laughs> The daily grind of 10 to 15 hours a day for 12 years, uh, it, it, it becomes quite obsessive in a sense. Um, one needs a rest. But what I'm trying to do is think to myself, uh, perhaps I should try and write a short version in the form of a... Uh, a, a historical introduction to China, or a history of China, not in 1.4 million words, but maybe in in 200,000 words maximum. Uh, that too is a form of discipline. It, that too would be a challenge to go from the huge effort of this one into something uh, more concise. Absolutely. Well, best of luck. Um, thank you again for your generosity in making the time to talk with us today. Um, and, it's a, and congratulations. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. 
You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.